I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems the latest thing on television is fishing programmes. There's Fishing All-Stars with Dean Macy, the Olympic decathlon. There's Extreme Fishing with Robson Green. There's everything from River Monsters at one end to the rather more sedate Gone Fishing with Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse. But wherever you look at the moment, there seems to be fishing on television. Shouldn't really make good telly, just sitting and watching people who are just sitting and sitting and waiting, but somehow it's strangely compelling. I've never been much of a fisherman myself, unless you count crabbing off the pier at Cromer. I did try it a couple of times as a, as a boy with a couple of mates. We went to the local lake and... Uh, I never caught anything and I very quickly got bored. But what I've discovered by watching these programmes is it's not just about luck. Particularly in fly fishing, a successful fisherman or fisherwoman knows that to catch the really big ones takes more than just a worm and a hook. It takes time. It takes cunning, it takes thought, it takes imagination. The whole process begins with the study of the prey. What does fish like? What are its habits? Where does it go? And not all fish are the same. Different fish like different things. They eat different foods, they swim in different waters. And the angler needs to know where to go and what bait to use depending on what kind of fish he wants to catch. And having made the study, the expert angler can then spend many hours creating flies, taking the hook and disguising it with feathers and hairs and various different things and wrapping them up. And they can become real works of art when you see some of these flies that they create. Designed to appeal to the fish. Designed to look like a, the most juicy fly that the fish has ever seen. So that the fish sees this fly in the water and thinks, oh, that looks good to eat. I've got to have some of that. And it's not just a case of throwing the line in and hoping, having created that fly. Yes, the expert angler learns how to cast the rod and to play with the line so that the fly moves in the water, imitating the movement of real flies, to tempt the fish out of its hiding places. And even once the fish is on the line... It's not possible just to reel them in always. If you try just to straight reel them in, you're going to end up with another story of the one that got away. Instead, you need to play with them. You reel them in a bit and let it out and reel them in a bit until you eventually manage to land your catch. There's an awful lot involved in fishing. In our reading from James this morning... We read that we are often dragged away and enticed. 
And the Greek word that is translated enticed is actually the word delazio, which literally means to catch with bait. Here, James is talking about fishing. But unlike the image of fishing that we most often hear from the New Testament, when Jesus is calling us to be fishers of men, here, in this passage, James is talking about us not as the fishermen, but as the fish. We are the prey, and it is the devil that is the fisherman. Before I go any further, though, to look at what James has to say about fishing, a quick word about James. Last week, Josh started us off on our new series, working through the book of James. Our verse for the year, Draw Near, comes from James, so it kind of makes sense for us to to spend some time looking at it. And over the next few weeks, we will work our way through the book of James. As Josh said last week, uh, there were several Jameses in the Bible, but most scholars agree that the James who wrote this was the brother of Jesus. And we know that he wrote the letter in about 60 AD. So that's about 30 years after the death of Jesus. And it's probably less than a year before James himself would go on to be martyred. Unlike Paul's letters, which were written to specific people or groups of people, to the Romans or to Timothy, and were primarily often written to Gentiles, Christians who didn't come from a Jewish background, James's letter is different in that it's just written out generally, not to anyone specific, and it's addressed to Jewish Christians, Christians who have come from Jewish backgrounds. And that's not the only difference. If you read the book of James and read the whole thing through from beginning to end, and I suggest that you do do that, it only takes about ten minutes, it's not that long a book to read, read it as James intended. He sent it as a letter to be read as one. But if you do that, what you'll find is James is a very unusual letter different from all the other letters in the New Testament. It's one of the reasons why it was one of the last books to be included in the canon, the, the, the official list of books that are considered to be part of Scripture. In fact, a lot of people argue it's probably only the fact that it was James, the brother of Jesus, that got it over the line to be included, because it was a little controversial as, as an inclusion. Martin Luther, 1,500 years later, when he translated the Bible into German, he did still include it, but he put it right at the end because he wasn't entirely sure whether or not it should be there. It's a different book. And what's different about it is the word Josh used last week. It's a practical book. Most of the other letters, yes, If you think about Romans, which we studied early in this year, they have deep theological discussions, looking at matters of doctrine. Romans 8 talks about the concept of salvation through grace. 
James, on the other hand, is a more practical guide to living out the faith. That doesn't mean it doesn't have theology in it, and it doesn't mean that Romans doesn't have practical help. But the tone of the letter is very much distinctive. The Bible is made up of lots of different books. It's not a single book. It's made up of different authors writing for different audiences for different purposes. And that's one of the things that brings the Bible to life, the way all of these different elements come together. So it's not that it's better or worse than Romans and the other books, but it is distinctive in its practical nature. So, what is it that James is trying to tell us in this passage? What is the practical tip that he is trying to give to his readers? Well, I think it's verse 16. Do not be deceived. That's the message that James is trying to get across here. He's talking about temptations. Put simply, temptations are lies. Every temptation is a lie of one sort or another. Temptations say to us, this will make you happy. This will fulfil your dreams. This will keep you satisfied. They say doing this will make you wealthy or healthy, or popular. Temptations don't say this will make you unhappy. They don't say this will lead to death and destruction. That's no temptation. No. Temptations are like the fisherman's fly, promising us something good, but actually leading to death. In John Eight, Jesus says of the devil, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But he then gives us the solution to the problem of lies when he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what James is saying. Don't be deceived. Don't believe the lies. The truth will set you free. I know this in a very real way in my own life. I have very much been set free by the truth. For many years, I was a smoker. Maybe not the worst crime of all, but it was a temptation that however hard I tried, I didn't seem to be able to overcome. I didn't seem to be able to resist the temptation to smoke. I tried all kinds of different things, but nothing seemed to work. Smoking quite literally leads to death. I know that. I know it, knew it then. 
It doesn't need the latest thing of putting pictures of diseased lungs on packets of cigarettes to tell me that. I know that. All smokers know that. There are lots of good reasons for smoking. All smokers know those reasons. But that's not enough. Whenever I tried, I just couldn't quit. Until one summer, four or five people I knew all quit smoking in quick succession. All separately, didn't even know each other, all quit smoking and all said the way they'd done it was reading Alan Carr's book, The Easy Way to Stop Smoking. So I thought, it's worth it. I've tried everything else I can think of. I'll read the book. How the book works is this. Rather than looking at reasons for stopping smoking or explaining techniques that you can try, it looks at the reasons why people smoke, or at least the reasons why people say that they smoke. And it goes through them one by one and exposes them for the lies that they are. One example is smokers will often say they do it to be sociable. Yes? It's a fairly common reason given by smokers. Oh, I do it to be sociable. But that's nonsense. When you think about it, it's plainly nonsense. I can be sociable without smoking. Having a cigarette in my hand doesn't make me any more sociable. In fact, if I'm smoking and you don't like it, it's going to put you off. So it causes a barrier. And if I'm smoking and you're a smoker, well, that's fine. But if you're smoking, I can still socialise you without a cigarette. I don't have to have the cigarette to make me able to socialise with you. Smoking is not sociable. It's a lie. Another big reason that smokers often give, and I often gave, is that it relieves stress. The truth is, nicotine is addictive. It may not be like cocaine, very addictive. It's a very subtle addiction. But nevertheless, nicotine is physically addictive. So as a smoker, as soon as you finish one cigarette, your body starts to go into withdrawal. Because it's subtle, it may take a while for those withdrawal symptoms to grow. It may be an hour or two. You may not even notice it for a while. And even when you do start to feel them, you may not recognise them as being withdrawal symptoms, but that's what they are. And those withdrawal symptoms cause stress to your body. Not a major stress, but stress nonetheless. So when you have a cigarette, your body gets the nicotine it's craving. That relieves the symptoms. That relieves the stress. But the truth is, 
all it's doing is taking you back to where you were before. As the book describes it, it's kind of like hitting yourself repeatedly over the head with a stick over and over again so that when you stop, you feel better. Surely it's better not to hit yourself over the head with a stick in the first place. If you're not a smoker, having a cigarette won't relieve stress because the only stress it relieves is the stress of the withdrawal symptoms. And when I read this, I couldn't believe how stupid I'd been. I couldn't believe how I'd been fooled by these lies for so long. I couldn't believe that it was that simple. But it was. They were lies. I could ignore them. It really was an easy way to stop. I couldn't wait to finish the book and never have I been tempted again. The truth had set me free. And that's what the truth does. Temptations are lies. So I want to look at four truths this morning about temptations. The first of that is temptation is inevitable. James does not say if you are tempted. He says when you are tempted. Every one of us here is tempted. Tempted every day. Tempted every hour. Tempted every minute almost. From the greatest to the least, it makes no difference. We are all subject to temptation. Even Jesus was tempted. And becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you don't get tempted anymore. In fact, becoming a Christian just means, makes it worse because there were more things to be tempted about. If you don't read your Bible and pray because you're not a Christian, you can't be tempted not to do that. But as soon as you become a Christian, those things can become temptations. If you don't go to church on a Sunday morning, it's not a temptation to stay in bed on a Sunday morning. There's no reason to get up. So becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we avoid temptation. Temptation is inevitable. James isn't giving us a way to avoid it, but to deal with it. And there's nothing wrong with being tempted either. Being tempted itself is not a sin. As I said, Jesus was tempted. No, the only problem is when we give in to temptation. So the first truth about temptation is it is inevitable. The second truth, though, is it is individual. Yes, we are all tempted, but we are all tempted differently. What tempts you and what tempts me are not necessarily going to be the same. I can't tell you what you are tempted by. 
but I don't need to. Because you know. You don't have to think for very long to know what are the things that you really struggle with. I suspect you're probably thinking of them already. You know what you are tempted by. The magazine Discipleship Journal asked its readers to rank the areas of greatest spiritual challenge to them. And the results came out in this order. Number one was materialism. Number two, pride. Number three, they named self-centeredness. Four was laziness. And then joint fifth came anger and lust. Are some of those the things you get tempted by? Maybe some of those are things that you don't feel that you have a major problem with. That may well be the case. As I said, we are all different. Like the angler using different bait to catch different fish, the devil uses different bait to catch different people. He knows you. He's studied you. He knows your strengths and your weaknesses. And he tempts you accordingly. James in verse 14 said, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed their own personal bait. The third truth about temptation is that it is important how we deal with it. James 15 says, Temptations, if given into, lead to sin, and sin leads to death. Yes, temptation itself may not be sin, but giving in to temptation is important that we don't do that. Some temptations, like smoking, can actually lead to physical death. But that's not what he means when he says death here. Believing the lies is putting our trust in other things to bring us health or wealth or happiness. It's trusting in things other than God. It's separating us from God. And being separate from God is death. That's what death is, being separated from God, the source of life. So how we deal with temptations is important. And then the fourth truth about temptation is that it's inexcusable. Temptations do not come from God, James makes clear. There may be times when God leads us through tough times, through testing times, but that does not mean that he tempts us. The oldest story of them all, if we go right back, 
to the very beginning, to the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What's Adam's response? It was the woman you put here, he says to God. He's blaming the woman. He's blaming Eve for giving him the fruit. He's blaming God for putting Eve there so that Eve could give him. He's not taking responsibility for his own actions. God doesn't tempt us. God gives us good things. That's what James goes on to say, not temptations. If we give in to temptation, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We are responsible for our own actions. In Genesis 39, we read the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. If you don't remember that part of the story, she invites the young Joseph into her bed. And Joseph's response is to quite literally run out the door. That's what we need to do when we're faced with temptation. We need to run for it. We need to get as far away from it. We need to resist it with everything we have in us. Better still, if possible, and often it is, we need to avoid the situation altogether. If you have a weakness for donuts, don't walk past Greg's. You're just making things harder for yourself. So, temptation is inevitable. It's individual. It's important how we deal with it, and it's inexcusable to give in to it. As I've said, each of you will face your own individual temptations. Each of you will face your own individual lies behind those temptations. And I can't give you all the specific truths to overcome all of those lies. But I can point you to the truth. Because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He is the truth that will help us to overcome all those lies, to overcome all those temptations. And I can point you to the Bible, which is the truth about the truth. What did Jesus do when he was tempted? He's quoted scripture to the devil. It is the truth that sets us free. We're all fish swimming in this fishing pond. The bait is out there. Let's be on the lookout for it. And it's targeted specifically for us. So let's be aware of our own particular weaknesses. It is dangerous. So it's important that we avoid it. We can't just nibble at it and expect not to be caught. 
Instead, we should run from it or avoid it whenever possible. Let's see those hooks for what they really are, not be deceived by the bait that they pretend to be. Whenever we're tempted, and most of the time, we know we're being tempted, we need to recognise them for the lies that they are. Temptations are lies, designed to hook us, designed to capture us. Don't be deceived. Live on the truth, the truth that is Jesus, and the truth will set you free.